not there, having to work last night uh, for this series. But uh, having concluded James, I wanted to get into First Peter because uh, there is so much hope involved. And it appears to me in some respects that he may have even written this book during this period of the year uh, because there's so much mention of Christ and his sacrifice and the resurrection and so on. Whether that be the case or not, at least the material is here that fits today so very well. So we, we didn't get very far last night. We only got down to verse 10 of chapter 1 of First Peter. But he starts out by uh, talking about the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection and the hope that we have in the resurrection. And he uses somewhat the same terminology. He calls it a lively hope, uh, an alive hope, something real just as James describes a living faith. So these are not things that are to be dead or uh, not thought highly of, but they are to be alive and living, something that keeps us going, uh, something that helps us on the road toward eternal life or living. So a lively hope. And then we concluded with the thought at verse 10 that... What we are doing here, that Peter wrote down for those of us upon whom the ends of the world have come, is a statement that even the prophets of old diligently inquired and asked questions and wanted to know about the future. You know, in in God's church, we've always had a concern or a projection forward, wondering how and when the prophecies would come to pass, and uh, we began that in the 60s at least and uh, looked at 72 as the time of the beginning of the tribulation and 75 would be Christ's return. And here we are. Uh, many of us in this room weren't even born in 72. Uh, so we're still looking, but it's becoming more and more real every day. So... The mental outlook and the emotional issue we have with when, 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 and how, how, how is not something new. It's something that was there two, three, four, five thousand years ago when uh, the people of God were looking forward to what they understood as the kingdom of God soon to come. (laughs) Uh, They all thought it was coming soon, no matter how far back they were. God just simply held those cards close to his chest and never would tell. But Christ gave some insights which give us a general view of when these things would happen and the things to watch for as it's getting very near. And this end time uh, resurrection, if you will, of the church uh, has to be the last one because Christ said when this generation arrived, it would not die out until these things happened. So we're now on the edge of the thing the prophets inquired diligently and searched for. And they prophesied of the grace that would come to us. So let's pick it up then in verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify 
when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So they asked those questions, searching when is this going to happen, because uh, at some point they had the Psalms, 22 and 23, which we read the other night, uh, Psalm 53 that we read, uh, foretelling the coming of Christ, and many, many, many other references in the Old Testament and the prophecies to Christ's coming to the earth, not his second, but his first coming. And they wondered about that. And yet, from their day until the time he did come and was born, uh, was a long time. But it did testify the sufferings of Christ. There we saw in, in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, the very things that he would go through. And they read those and read about it, and now we look back on it. Verse 12, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister the things which are now reported to you by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So, God inspired Herbert Armstrong to begin the end time church and to reveal to us these things that the prophets didn't know about and wondered about and wrote down that we might understand. Not even the angels really get it. It says that the angels look, desire to look into these things. It's a mystery to us how this flesh can take on immortality and live eternally. Our experience on this earth has been to see people get old and die. We ourselves are getting old and dying, some of us, and some of us are still young and think that won't happen to us. But uh, it will, given time, uh, because that's the way God set it up. So if it's hard for us to grasp the mystery of God, eternal life, and living in a circumstance where there's no pain or no sorrow or no tears, no death. It's hard for us to imagine that. And even the angels. Now, why can't they understand it? I mean, they're, they're for now at least, a cut above us. We are made for a while lower than the angels, but we'll be made higher than them ultimately, as Hebrews says. So... Why can't they understand it? I think it may be because they see us. <laughs> you know? We look at us and think, how could this be? And they look at us and think, how could this be? Um, so they don't, quick, they don't quite grasp it either. It, it, it's beyond them. What God has in mind is such an incredible thing that even they have trouble understanding and, and keep saying, hmm, I want to look into that some more. Well, what's then the response? How should we respond to that? Verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope, to the end for the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, 
we, we speak of girding up our loins as, you know, when they had to run, they, they girded up their, their skirts or their kilt or whatever. And this is talking about girding up the loins of your mind. It's a, you don't have loins in your mind, but it's, uh, it's a metaphor, obviously. Uh, and like you're getting ready to run, if you gird up your mind, you're getting ready mentally to run for the race that is set before us, as Paul put it. So we need to think seriously about this, because why let such an opportunity get away from us? We have opportunity to live forever in peace and happiness, not frustration and misery and the heaviness, as uh, he put it in verse 6, that comes upon us because of being human. Uh, as I've said many times, I think, over the years, it's hard to grasp a, an emotional and mental state that is uplifting at all times. Our natural mind is downpulling. Our desires, our feelings, uh, we go toward doubt, discouragement, fear, negativity, uh, sin in any and every respect. That's the pull of human nature and the pull of Satan's broadcast in the air. And we struggle and fight with that. It doesn't matter whether you're in the church or not. Uh, look at the world. They struggle with alcoholism and drugs and, and all kinds of things that make them unhappy and miserable. And even in this country, which has the greatest material wealth of any area or country in history, and I read an article just the other day about how Americans are the most depressed, frustrated, stressed people on earth. Unhappiest people in many respects. Uh, has wealth and material goods and a beautiful country we live in solved the problems of human nature? Not at all. Because they fight the same human nature we fight and the same nature we had before we began to understand the truth. We understood the truth and our mind began to change and be converted, but human nature didn't change. So we still struggle with the same things the world struggles with, it's just that we have a greater hope, a greater future, and it is a greater future as the bride of Christ, as opposed to being some of the children perhaps in the millennium of the great white throne. They won't have as high a position, they won't have as close a relationship with the Father and the Son as we do. So we're very much blessed to be right here today looking at scriptures about Christ and how he suffered and what he did and the revelation uh, of him that is the revealing of Christ as a child and as a grown man who died for us and then was resurrected. So he says, be sober, <clears throat> verse 14, as obedient children, not fastening yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. You know, we just were what we were. Uh, in our ignorance before God began to call us. We did what we did. Uh, we were in the world, and we followed the ways of the world and the lusts, whatever they might be, of the world. Uh, we were ignorant. 
But now we understand. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conduct. Conversation, I suppose, could fit, but it's a 1611 word that means conduct. But even our conversation and our conduct needs to be holy, uh, as God is holy. Because it is written, Be you holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11. We're called to be just like he is, to think like he thinks. And we fall short of it every day with things we think, things we say, that do not reflect holiness. And that needs to be very, very much on our mind. That's why he says to be sober and to be diligent in obedience. Uh, You know, if you're going to be obedient to the laws of God, it has to start here. If you're not thinking of the things of God, you're not going to do the things of God. If you're thinking the things that are natural to the human mind in the world, that's what you're going to wind up doing. So it's a matter of thought control, mind control. Uh, Nobody can control your mind but you. And he tells us to bring into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. Now there's a challenge, a real challenge. Uh, None of us are going to be in this life, as far as I can see and read in the Bible, by example, like Paul and others who admitted they had difficulties, we're never going to be holy in this life in the same way that God is holy. We will have human nature and Satan to fight through the whole thing. But our goal and our purpose is to be that way. And we need to get as close to it as we possibly can. Just because we know that in this life we'll never attain that does not mean that we don't strive to achieve it. Paul said that he struggled all his life, and then he he says, well, I've, I've run the race and I've won. He knew finally that he had fought hard enough, run hard enough, uh, beat his body into subjection enough that he was going to make it into the kingdom of God. He had that confidence, enough confidence to write it toward the end of his life before he was killed. So that's our goal and our purpose to be as much like God as we can get, and then, when we are changed, we'll become holy as He is holy, completely holy. But I want to become at least holy enough that He'll say, I want you in my kingdom. You know, we want Him to be pleased with us. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's works, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Healthy kind of fear. He doesn't mean the kind of fear that freezes you up, that keeps you from moving forward, but the healthy kind of fear that spurs you on to do what you need to do. In other words, we could fear missing out on the kingdom of God. We could fear his judgment because that's what he's talking about here. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. Uh, 
He just looks at our life and he makes a judgment based on what that life has contained, what we have done. So we can't compare ourselves among ourselves. That isn't wise and it doesn't work. We all tend to do it, but we can't. What do you mean we compare ourselves among ourselves? I don't do that. Yes, you do. Sometimes you say something well of someone, you think, I wish I could be like that. I wish it were more that way. But so often we make a judgment on somebody else that's negative toward them, um, putting them down in some form or some fashion. And that is being a respecter of persons. And it is putting them below ourselves. God doesn't do that. So he does say to pass our time here in fear that we'll miss out. In other words, be spurred on to gird up the loins of our mind, our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts, and bring them into the captivity of Christ. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conduct received by tradition from your fathers. We grow up in a household uh, and we take on the ideas, the approach, the background of what we grew up in. Fortunately, some here grew up at least in the church or in a church culture with the family, and that kind of gives you a head start, but it doesn't guarantee a thing, does it? Because it's so easy to go the way of the world, and it's so hard to go God's way. So even with a boost, sometimes it's difficult. But silver and gold don't get us anywhere. Some of the most frustrated, miserable people on earth are those who have lots of money, or silver and gold, or wealth, however you, whatever form it is in. But the way they conduct their lives is vanity and ego and just temporary. And that's the tradition we received. I guess that's, in a way, the American dream. Come to America, have lots of money, uh, have success in a nice home in the suburbs or whatever your part of that dream might have been. But those suburbs are now filled with people who are frustrated, they're stressed. They drive an hour or two to just to get to work, then they live under stress at work, and then they live an hour or two, or sit in traffic for an hour or two to get home. Uh, when I was out in uh, San Bernardino, Riverside area, uh, if I had to go into Pasadena for classes or whatever, sometimes it'd take two hours to get back out to home ground was not an easy situation. Frustrating. Then when you get home, you got to quickly do things and sit down and hopefully relax a little bit so you can get up and sit in traffic two hours the next day. What a way to live. So, it isn't anything on this earth that we can look to. Verse 19, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, our forgiveness, the mercy that God gives us, comes through that forgiveness. How many people on earth, in this land, walking around out here in this park today, 
have guilty consciences about things in the past, things they've done, the types of life they've lived, lying, stealing, cheating, murdering, adulterating, you name it. You know, they've all been through all these things, even as we have been through a lot. And they suffer from the consequences of things they've done in the past. And they feel guilty about things they've done in the past. But they have no way of getting past that. Now, as of Tuesday evening, we were all cleansed. Cleansed in the blood of Christ. There is no sin in our past. Can you believe that? Can you grasp that? Can we accept that for ourselves even? That all our sin is forgiven. It's done away. It's no longer on the record. Why do you worry about it? Why do any of us worry about the past when it has been expunged, taken away? It no longer exists. It's gone. You don't believe that. I know you don't. Because you still grieve over it, are frustrated about it, and sometimes get to thinking about it and become discouraged because of things that are in your past. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't implications or penalties in our lives as a result of the past and what we may have done because they may have affected us or affected others, okay? Uh, and the circumstance in our life may be different and people may have different attitudes or thoughts toward us as a result of things we may have done in the past, okay? So those things are there. But understand the difference. The sin itself is gone. The record is clean before God. It's not something you need to feel guilty about. You move on. It's like every year at Passover. Now, of course, we pray for forgiveness every day, and it is available to us every day. But in a formal sense, once a year, we go before God, renew our contract, and formally it is done away with and gone. So we should feel excited relieved you know I've often through life pulled some very very heavy trailers behind pickups and they slow you down on the hills and they make you a little leery on the curbs and you're just packing a lot of weight back there and then when you unhitch the trailer you feel like oh wow I can go up hills and I can go around curves and the weight isn't there. I'm not pulling that load anymore. And it's, it's a uh, relieving feeling. And we need to feel the same thing after Passover. We have the precious blood of the Lamb to wash away all our sin. Accept it. We don't have to go through life feeling guilty, brethren. We don't have to do that. We can get past it. That's what that 
precious blood is all about. He was without blemish and without spot. We come with spots and blemishes, and those can be washed away. And we're supposed to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now, let's take that one step further. If you have had your trailer unhitched, then how about letting your brothers and sisters unhitch theirs? That we love each other as Christ loved us. We rehearse that in John at the Passover as well. So have the faith, have the confidence, and the hope that springs from that, that your trailer is unhitched, your sin is gone, but let each other's go too. That's the other part of it. Because God says ultimately, if we don't let our brothers and our sisters' sin go, He will retain ours. He will judge us according to the way we judge them. So we have to do that and be willing to do that. Verse 20, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. Well, they made the decision before man was ever created that Christ would come and he would live a perfect life and suffer and die for us and be resurrected for us. Do you really think that God was surprised when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? <laughs> he created human beings. He created human nature. And he already had Satan having rebelled against him. And he knew what rebellion and disobedience could create, could cause. So it wasn't like he was blindsided by the fact that Satan was able to influence mankind. So they, it says Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. Well, it says it right here. But it was made manifest for us. Who by him do believe in God? that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. I think God arranged James, Peter, and John in the order that he did on purpose. Faith, then hope, and then the climax of it all, love, which is the most important of the three. It's named last, uh, but it takes the right kind of living faith and obedience and hope that comes through obedience to produce the love that we need for God and for one another. So uh, that which is first comes last. And doesn't God say that? That which is first will be last and that which is last will be first. So the most important comes last. Just as in our lives, the most important thing that will ever occur is the resurrection of the dead and to be a part of the kingdom of God. So we go through all this down here before that happens. It's the last thing to happen. I 
mentioned last night, and I think it would be good to say it again today, maybe it'll be good to say it tomorrow and Sunday as well, that Christ's death begins the Passover season. And this year, it occurred on a Wednesday, the same day that he was crucified on. So this happens once in a while that you have a Wednesday uh, Passover day, Tuesday night, which is the beginning of Wednesday after sunset anyway. And then three days later, which will be tomorrow afternoon, he was resurrected. Then, uh, once he was received of the Father on Sunday morning, after he went to uh, heaven and came back, uh, he was the wave sheep or the resurrected Christ, accepted of God, offered for us. Then begins the count to Pentecost from that day uh, when the Holy Spirit came 50 days later. So it's important that we recognize the Passover season not just for his death, but for his life. Because if he'd stayed dead, where would we be? Uh, Passover or death is certainly so very, very important because even if he were still alive, we wouldn't be forgiven if he hadn't died and his blood been shed for us. But at the same time, if he hadn't been resurrected, there wouldn't be any hope either. So our forgiveness is in his blood. Our hope is in his resurrection. And that occurred during the Days of Unleavened Bread as well. And that's what he's talking about here that God raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. So our faith and our hope can be in that resurrection and the glory that he was returned to that he had before he came down to this earth. Verse 22, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit to unfeigned love of the brethren, See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. That's what we're called upon to do. Not as the world tends to do, you know, around the water cooler at work or wherever. You have this, oh, it's so good to see you, darling, you jerk. Uh, you know, behind the scenes, what they're really thinking and what they say is two different things so often. And we can be two-faced that way so very easily. We can say pleasant things while at the same thing, time uh, our thoughts really aren't quite that uh, lovable, to put it that way. But we are to have pure thoughts, hearts, and minds. And we, how do you purify your soul? Through obedience to God. You cannot get away from the law of God being love. We'll get to that in the book of First John. Keeping his commandments is love. He keeps his commandments. He obeys them. They're his way of life, his way of living. His laws he codified for us because they lead to abundant life and joy and happiness. When you break them, you suffer penalties. Uh, penalties of conscience, which we talked about a little while ago. We, we live with those penalties. Why is it 
that we experience early in life, the penalties for disobedience, either to parents or ultimately even to God's laws, and we suffer and are chastened for that, and you would think that we would learn at some point, once and for all, I'll never, ever break my parents' word again. You'd think by the time you were 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 or 14, you'd get the point. But we still had to have spankings when we were in our teens. We still had to be curtailed from activities in our teens. We had to suffer penalties for disobedience to our parents. And instead of getting better, when we hit 13 or 14 or 15, we just got worse. Why? That's just human nature. And we understand in our minds right now that God is the Father of all and He makes the rules and His rules will produce happiness, but our bodies and our minds and our emotions tell, them, tell us, no, but this will make me happy right now. And it might, because there are temporary pleasures in sin. Sin can be fun. It really can but there's always a consequence that you pay afterward. Why can't we get it? We don't get it when we're 14 as a human, and I don't think we get it at 14 in our spiritual life either, or at 40, or however long you've been in the church. You still haven't quite got it. So he talks about it here. It is obeying God's way that brings happiness and joy and peace. It is disobedience that brings conflict and confusion and frustration and all those things. Boy, that's hard to learn. And Peter understood that, just as Paul did, as James did, as all the writers in the Bible understood it, because wherever you go, we come across this same thing. Obey God, your life will be better. Follow human nature, and it'll get worse, even though you think something would be fun. Or allowing your mind to go uh, away from the truth. But what does, what does the truth tell us? It tells us to love one another fervently. Now, what could I equate that to? Young love? When a couple, man and a woman, or boy and a girl even, begin to feel enamored with one another and to have those feelings uh, that are so close. Uh, new love, young love, excited, so happy, fervent love, you might say. Can't stand to be apart from one another or on the phone or together in some form or some fashion. Fervent love. Deep feeling. Exciting feeling. He says that we should come to have love one for another with a pure heart fervently. Pureness of mind and 
fervent, very close. We need to come to have that. That's why he's telling these people they need to have it, because it's true and we need to do the same thing. Now, once in a while, somebody will say, well, there's no love around here. I beg to differ. There's a lot of love shown. There's a lot of service given. There's a lot of taking care of the sick or the needy or fixing something for somebody. There's, there's a lot of the love of God shown. But that doesn't mean we have all we need either. In other words, let's not put ourselves down for what we have done and do accomplish. Let's just do more. Let's become purer in our minds and hearts toward each other, and let's make a redoubled effort not to put each other down or say negative things about one another or all those things that we tend to do as humans. We have to get past that. How can God use us in a peaceful, loving community unless we achieve that. He tells us there in Haggai 2, verse 9, In this place will I bring peace. That is, when he brings the end-time leadership and the remnant of his people together, he says, I will bring or give or create peace there. Now, if we are to be the forerunners and the preparers of a place for him to do that, which I think he has given us opportunity to do, that we must begin to have that kind of peace and unity among ourselves. And I'll tell you this, if we refuse and we're not willing to do that, God will sort us out. And where we'll wind up is anybody's guess maybe in the tribulation. And none of us want that. We don't want to go there. So it's time to gird up the loins of our mind and be sober and to love one another fervently. That's what we need to do. That's what Peter's telling us. Now what is that going to do? It's going to increase our hope. It's going to make us feel more positive about our opportunity to be in the kingdom of God. Let's not get sorted out. Let's finish the job God called us to do by doing what Peter is telling us to do here. This, this is getting down to serious business. And God is going to move forward at some point when he decides, and he is going to use those who are usable. And he is going to set aside, by one way or another, those who are not usable. That's just coming. It cannot be denied. There are several separations that have to take place. I think one is soon, in that we have to be the kind of people that he would draw people to come be with. And those who are not willing to make those changes will somehow be separated out. There is another one when we go to a place of safety. Just because you're part of the remnant 
and make that cut doesn't always mean you'll make the next one because once the temple is built and Jerusalem is built and the abomination is set up, he says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape at that time as well. So everyone is not going to be completely on board and there'll still be human nature even at that point. So there's another cut or another opportunity of success. Let's put it that way. And then there's the resurrection. That's another opportunity for success or a cut. So there are several ahead of us, and we need to make each one of them. And the way to do that is to have a pure heart fervently and to love one another as Christ loved us. And he can't help himself. If we treat each other the way he treated his disciples and treated us, he can't help himself. He'll include us. He just will. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom of God. That's what he desires above everything else. Christ came to this earth that the sinners might be saved. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. That would be us. He wants to save us. He went through that horrible death so that we could be saved. And he is going to be grossly disappointed if we don't make it. He's offering us every help, every chance. He's giving us years and space to repent and change our attitudes and grow. Let's not fail in that. Let's take advantage of the opportunity we've been given. Let's love one another with a pure heart, fervently. No better time than to start today. Why put it off and then forget that we read it? This is a good day to start. Why not? Maybe we've already started, but we need to push it further. Maybe we need to get more the way we need to be. Being begotten again, verse 23, not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So, we've been begotten of the Spirit of God, which is eternal. It will never go away. It will never fail. And it's in us. We cannot quench it. We must grow in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Because we have been begotten of an incorruptible seed. That which has been planted in your mind, in your heart, and emotions is eternal. And now we have to be sure that it goes into eternity. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. That's quoted several times in the Bible. It came from Isaiah 40, where the message at the end time is, Hey, we're all grass and we wither like the grass. And we need to do something to ensure that we don't wither. Because Isaiah says that men are like grass and they'll wither when all this comes. But we have been given the Spirit of God which doesn't wither. It doesn't go away. Our bodies may be withering up, but the Spirit in us does not. The glory of man is as the flower of grass. We can look pretty good. I mean, even humanly. You know, when the flowers come, first come out in the spring, they look so beautiful and so fresh and 
as they bloom. And then over the period of the summer, they lose their bloom, and by fall, they're just brown crust. And we're the same way. We're born kind of wrinkled and ugly, and it takes a few days before we begin to be cute babies. And then we look better and better, perhaps, as we grow, and by the time we're 20, 25, we're probably at our best. But boy, from about 30 on, whew, there it goes. There it goes. We're all like that. But we want to be, have eternal youth, eternal life, never doing as grass does. The flower thereof falls away. But the word of the eternal endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. We are to take a lively hope in the resurrection. That Christ died for us during this week. That he was resurrected for us during this week. He was accepted of the Father for us. Waved before God. And accepted. So, God the Father, through him, accepts us. We're acceptable to God through Christ. He got upset with the church because we took that for granted and did not love with a pure heart fervently. But he says if we'll change our attitudes and become that way, he will turn and shine his face on us and bless us beyond our belief and comprehension. So that's what we're up against. Here's a with let's let's be inspired, let's be encouraged during these days of what Christ did and and how he's been resurrected. And let's start today loving each other more than we have before. And then we can make progress toward the kingdom of God and eternal life.